0: So, uh, is anybody here for whom this truly is your first Mockingbird conference ever? All right. Has anybody been to a Mockingbird conference before? Okay, one. A couple of you. Um, Well, uh, so I, uh, what we're, uh, let me get an idea of kind of where you're from. Uh, Where are you from? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. What about you? Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Jones, yes. Minneapolis, Man, front, front row guy, right. okay, all right, What way to be bold, Texans over here, yeah, uh, Orange County, where in Orange County? Lake Forest. Okay, I lived in Los Alamitos and Huntington Beach as a child, and then they, they ran us out of town. Oh, you got your phone. Yeah, I know, thank you, thank you very much, very appreciated. So now I can look I can look less uh, addicted to my screen. Uh so and in back row, where are you guys from? I I okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Brooklyn. All right. Well thank you for making the trip. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. And and you. Houston. Houston. All right. Where do you go to church if you do? Not work, judging. Oh, you do. What do you do there? Uh, I'm the guy. Okay. How long have you been there? Uh, I am uh, just a year now. Okay. All right, well done. Way to go! Uh, I was on staff at your church for a while, and now I'm uh, at St. Alban's Waco. What about you? I didn't I didn't pick on you Colorado. yet. Colorado, okay. We got it. Well, diverse uh, g- geographically diverse um, representation here. Um, I uh, live in Waco, Texas, where I'm the rector of St. Alban's Church. Uh, originally from North Carolina, but have lived lots of places, like Orange County, California, and all over the world a little bit. Uh, and I am here to to answer. Uh, the question, kind of what is Mockingbird all about? And feel free to make this as interactive as you want it to be. Ask questions or uh, raise objections or hurl insults or whatever you feel like you need to do uh, so that you come out of this with um, whatever you uh, came in expecting to get. Um, uh, So I'm going to do a couple things. Tell you a little bit of the story of how Mockingbird got started. I'll talk you a little bit about kind of how it connected with me, because I hope that'll connect with you guys, and explain kind of what we're here to do. Uh, And then just uh, some time for you guys to ask questions and uh, see what we come out with. Um, The uh, I had an experience last night. Uh, It was unintentionally kind of a warm up for this little talk. I had dinner with uh, some old college friends who I haven't seen since 1999. (sighs) and uh, neither of them are active churchgoers. Both grew up in the church, but have sort of uh, stopped attending or being really involved. Um, one is an atheist. The other, I'm not sure what he is. But they asked me, you know, what is this? I'm like they're weird... Christian friend, um, that we were put together to live in the same dorm, and, uh, and so we had those conversations back then, and we sort of had one last night. But uh, one of them said, so what is this Mockingbird thing that you're in? And uh, so I had to try to explain to folks with no real reference, with very little reference points to Christianity in general. I, I couldn't say it's an organization that attempts to explain the gospel, for example, because that word doesn't connect or make any sense. There's no context for it. So, uh, what I said at the time was, uh, we, are, we are trying to communicate um, what Christianity is about in a way that doesn't make people think we are a-holes. Uh, so, the, the thing about um, Jesus is that everybody loves him, but very few people love Christians. And so there's kind of a disconnect there. And, and that's, so that's, I think, part of what Mockingbird is trying to do. But so let me, um, let me uh, begin uh, by saying, I think, uh, what we are not and then what we are. Um, many people find Mockingbird because they're interested in pop culture and theology. They want to know what is a Christian understanding of Kanye West or what is a Christian understanding of Westworld or what is a Christian understanding of the Beach Boys or whatever else Dave is into this uh, month or his whole life. Um, and so, uh, that's but that's not what it is. Some people think Mockingbird is just about... Uh, sort of a maybe an intellectual, uh, slightly posh version of Christianity. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of New Yorker references. Uh, we may pepper blog posts with references to philosophers you haven't heard of. So people might think it's that, um, but that's not what it is. Some people might think it's, um, you know, looking around uh, the room today at the conference. Um, that, it's, that it's kind of about a community. It's a community of people, uh, a community of white people. That's a joke. Um, uh, we're, we're working hard. Uh, um, I'm, I'm the third brown speaker today. I'm half brown, Dave, so I think we're, we're doing better. Um, so, uh, it's, but it's not just a community of people um, that like together and talk theology. So that's not. Those things are not what Mockingbird is. Those are. Those are sort of. You're touching a part, maybe. Uh, there's some. Some truth to those things, but. But that's not what we are here for. We're here because of a message. Uh, we are here because. Um, the folks. Um, like uh, Dave and J.D. and Nick Lannon and Sean Norris and folks over 10 years ago realized, like I said, there was a big disconnect between how we had experienced the grace of God and this really incredible figure of Jesus, who as Sarah Conan talked about this morning, um, invites um, uh, an awful person. Uh, to come down from his tree and instead of throwing the book at him and telling him the consequences of his actions, um, uh, loves him. And so that's who Jesus is, and yet most people don't experience church that way at all. And so there was a desire to try to communicate this because this message is something that we have found personally. And I can speak for myself personally, transformational and important and significant. And, uh, and so we wanted to, to communicate it because the thing is, um, if you do survey after survey, people think that Christianity, uh, um, is about two things. Uh, you ask people that like, what words come to mind when I say Christianity or I say Christian, people always say two things. Uh, this judgmental, Mm-hmm. And hypocritical. Yep. And so this is our we have a brand issue. <laughs> because that's not what Jesus was about and that's not what he was like. And so really, uh, there was no grand plan for Mockingbird. It was just we like these ideas. We want to talk about it. Um, and it, it, at the beginning, it was uh, Bible studies and almost sort of like a like a, a parish church ministry that happened to have a blog and some you know, small groups and stuff like that. Um, but because Dave is so deeply antisocial and off-putting. That didn't work. Uh, he's really best behind a computer. That's really where he should, where he should stay. So, uh, you know, the, this, this thing began to grow and spread. So with this trying to communicate this message and communicate it in a way that connects with people. So uh, if you've read the gospel according to uh, Peanuts, um, or if you've read Soren Kierkegaard, or you um, know anything about trying to communicate religious truth to people, you know that you can't start with religion. Because the second you start, the walls come down, the, uh, the doors shut. And so you kind of have to start where people already are. You have to start with what people are interested in. You have to start with real life. You have to start with um, what people are talking about. And, and this was this came about. So this was this this was the idea. We have this message, which I'll get to in a second, and we have a means of communicating it that we hope is a little bit um, that connects with people um, in a real way. And but not con- not in a contrived, artificial sort of sense. Uh, Dave actually does love Guns N' Roses, Elvis Presley, and the Beach Boys. Uh, Paul's all really does love the worst movies ever made. Um, I asked him once, "What is the you know what's the best movie, Paul?" And he told me, and I think his answer changes weekly, yeah. um, but it was that it was some uh, uh, John Goodman um, matinee, re- matinee. <laughs> yes. Do you still think it's the best movie of all time? question. Okay. So, so I, like, I went to order this movie because, you know, the dean of my seminary said this is the best movie of all time. So I ordered it. It's only on VHS, <laughs> on eBay, like first red flag. <laughs> Um, but so th- these are things that uh, we actually like, and we see these connections there. Uh, and by the way, this using these kinds of illustrations to connect what we would say is religious truth, or ultimate reality, to connect these to people's lives, using illustrations, it's not a trick, it's not a parlor trick, it's not sleight of hand. This is what Jesus did all the time. Jesus, ver- rarely do we have records of him quoting scripture, occasionally. But usually he said, the kingdom of God, religious truth, life in reality is like a guy who was digging and he found something buried in a field. Or It's like a guy who bought a vineyard, or it's like a lady who uh, lost a necklace of coins. You know, he just was using things that people understood from their daily life. He didn't begin up here. He started down here. So this is, we start with stuff we know and we start with stuff we love. So that was kind of the the method or the, the, the medium sort of, but the message itself uh, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, here. Um, if you have been reading the blog or reading Mockingbird books, or the fact that you have spent time and money to come here means in some sense what we do or what we talk about has connected with you. You found something there that helped you or gave you an aha moment or helped you understand something about your life that you hadn't previously. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you're just here because you lost a bet um, or a friend dragged you. But at least um, uh, for many people, there's something that we read through the work of Mockingbird that just connects very profoundly. Um, but there's, there's, uh, there's some really key points um, that drive everything we do, this message It's it's not again. It's not about pop culture. It's not about high culture or low culture. It's not about Wes Anderson, and it's not about the Beach Boys, and it's not. It's a little bit about Michael Jackson, but it's not about. (laughs) It's not about those things. It's really about these theological ideas, which again, even to say that sounds uh, uh, disconnected. But so it's about. But I, I should say it's about reality. It's about what is really true in human lives, and with God. And so the the key ideas and the first idea that drives um, what we do in Mockingbird and what we try to communicate is this idea uh, um, that, um, as Tim Blackman said this morning, there is a law uh, and um, it is uh, good, but it destroys us. This is countercultural in the church today because the law is almost universally seen as 100% good. And yes, it is holy, righteous, true, spiritual, as Tim said. The, 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 the place where the church gets off the bus with reality is the church believes that you can tell somebody what to do and they will do it. So we begin with this understanding of the law Um that says, yes, it is good, yes, it is right, but in its own uh, power, it cannot bring about that which it demands. Uh, In other words, lectures don't work. Lecturing sermons don't work. Um, Accountability groups don't work. All those um, admonitions to fly right, to do good, to clean up your life, to break up with that no-good boyfriend, or to um, start scheduling a regular date night, or um, just restrain your anger around your children, or whatever it might look like to clean up your life. Stop reading People Magazine incessantly. Um, <laughs> you know Those things are all good and right and true, but me telling you to do those things will not actually cause that change. I think that's, that's one of the, and again, it, this is uh, not something you might, if you were to read one blog post, you may not get this. But this is one of the driving ideas behind Mockingbird, that if you tell people what to do, it actually doesn't work. It may work for a time, but not um, forever um, and not permanently. Uh, it might create grudging obedience, but it doesn't create heart change. Um, there's a story, a true story, um, and I, t- I tell this about, it demonstrates the, the extent of what the law can do. So in the 1960s in Toronto, there was a police strike for 16 hours. And you know Canadians, right? Super nice people, apologize for everything. You know, you could step on their toe and a Canadian would say, I'm so sorry my foot was in your way. It's sort of that kind of attitude. Um, uh, Just really nice folks. And uh, uh, so Toronto, law-abiding, clean city. Uh, and uh, the police were on strike for 16 hours, and during that time, when there was no consequence, no law to restrain behavior, these Canadians looted, rioted. Uh, there was a um, uh, committed all sorts of crimes. It was pandemonium, uh, and uh, these people were transformed. There was a rival. There was a rivalry between two competing cab companies. They had been sort of fighting over turf and who kind of had the airport routes and stuff like that. And so they had kind of had this ongoing spat. And it broke out into a full-fledged war uh, in that I think Molotov cocktails were thrown. And one company set a bus on fire and drove it through the headquarters of the other company. (laughs) Wow. If you you don't believe me, uh, this is in uh, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. So, the, what that shows what the law can do. While the police were in effect, people behaved, not because they wanted to, <laughs> just only out of self-interest, and they feared the negative consequences. But there was clearly no change in their person. Um, So this is sort of what we say about the law, and and that is an implicit uh, critique of Christianity as it is largely practiced in many, many, many places and in this country because so many churches and Christians and writers and pastors think that our job as Christians is to communicate the law so that people will follow it. If we could just get a better system or a better newsletter or a better uh, church format or something, we could just get people to change. And we begin with the, with the belief that that is a complete non-starter. And not only um, can the law, maybe at its best, only produce grudging obedience but no heart change, its usual effect is to create the opposite of that which it demands. Which is actually what St. Paul says. The law increases the trespass. He says, I didn't know what it was to covet, and then as soon as the law thou shalt not covet, I was filled with all kinds of covetous desires." So we say the not only can the law um, only produce grudging obedience, it it usually produces resistance and the opposite effect. This is why, for example, during Prohibition, another true story. Watch the Ken Burns documentary. During Prohibition in this country, we became the world's largest importer of cocktail shakers. So just uh, the, the idea was to curtail drinking, and the exact opposite happened. And I think in many ways American culture on alcohol still reflects our relationship um, uh, through that um, rather disastrous social policy. So the law can't create what it demands, and it usually just provokes a reaction. So that's the first kind of idea that, mocking, that drive, you know, what's, what, what, what drives us. The second thing is an idea about human beings. the the will. You've seen these bumper stickers, low anthropology. Uh, That doesn't mean that we we don't like um, uh, people who study ancient cultures. Uh, That's not what that means. Anthropos is Greek for person, man. And a low anthropology means we have a low uh, um, belief in human ability to change or improve. Uh, We are not a yes-we-can kind of people. Um, uh, The will, the human will, uh, we would see it as fundamentally unfree. Uh, There was an episode of This American Life where Ira Glass diagnoses this exact condition, Um, You think you are free. You think you were free about what college you chose to go to or what person you chose to marry or um, even what you got dressed in this morning. But I guarantee you when you there were a lot of other voices in that conversation about how other people will see you how your parents will see you, how your friends will see you, how this will affect your career, uh, your worth and value attached to all these external things. Those are driving the choices before you even get in the car. Uh, so Ira Glass talks about one morning at his house, um, and this is a, a, um, an episode called, uh, I think it's The Devil in Me, uh, and it's about all these things in human beings that make us do crazy things. And he says his wife Uh, somebody came to the door to deliver a package. Um, She asked him to get the package, get the door. uh, And he said, no, you do it. I'm busy right now. And she didn't want to because she was still in her pajamas and she was dressed rather uh, lightly and uh, didn't want to go to the door. And he said, no, you're fine. Just go do it. And she came back. So she, you know, reluctantly went and got the package and came back in, and um, you know she confronts him and says, "This is the thing you do. Uh, you never admit you're wrong." And what he says about it, she, he says she's exactly right. And what's amazing about, as I reflect on this experience, is that there was no conscious thought about it at all on my part. There was no decision where he said, you know, should I. Be a jerk or should I not be a jerk? It just, the impulse just was there. Uh, And the rationalization was just there immediately. Um, This is why when you get accused of something by the person you live with, your immediate, instinctive, reflexive reaction is defensiveness. And there was no choice that went into that whatsoever. It is automatic. (laughs) And so uh, for most of the significant things in our lives, uh, we would say that the will is not free, which is, again, why the law doesn't work. It, the, the, to just give people the law or give people rules or give people instructions for living or whatever uh, term you want to use, um, it presumes that people can then freely choose to do those things. And any Christian teacher who is using that as a model for ministry obviously has not read the Old Testament. Because uh, what happens uh, when Joshua is about to enter the promised land and God renews the covenant and says, This is, you know, these are the rules, remember? Uh, Can you do them? If you do them, it'll be great. And if you don't, it'll be terrible. And they all say, We will do it. And then they don't. I mean, maybe for five minutes. Uh, and that's the whole history of the, of the, of the people of, of Israel. But they shouldn't have been surprised because if you go back and you look at when the law was first given to Moses, those tablets, um, what's the first thing that people do? As Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, clouds, lightning, thunder, the physical, visible manifestation of God, which you and I have never seen. And yet when they were right in front of that, what were they doing? They were making a golden calf. They were breaking the first commandment as it, before the ink was even dry. So this is the history of the law. So the, we say the will is not free. Uh, Paul's all likes to quote Stephen King's idea of the boys in the basement. Uh, um, there, there are things deep in our subconscious. Um, uh, however you want to understand your theory of the mind, there are things in us that make us want to do things that are not in our own self-interest. We sabotage our relationships. We sabotage our lives. We go back to this Same behaviors that have not worked in the past. We know that there is a thing we could do to change our life and make it better. And we are paralyzed and cannot do it. Even though we know what the conversation we need to have is, we just won't do it. Um, So the will is not... Free. Um, Mockingbird will talk a lot about just kind of trying to be honest and real about the reality. And and there's a lot of Christian organizations that I think don't go deep enough into the darkness of the human condition. They don't diagnose the problem fully um, because it's it's dark down there. But we we do at Mockingbird want to talk about. Uh, Sex and substance abuse and greed and eating disorders and mental illness and suicide. Um, so there can be, there's sometimes a dark uh, thread running through Mockingbird's writings and conversations. But that's because that's where many of us live. You know, uh, I just heard Dave reference a Mockingbird conference happened in Charlottesville a few years ago, at which R.J. Heyman, last night's speaker, gave a talk. And uh, the conference was about suffering, and R.J. spoke about suicide. And he just began by saying, "You know, how many people here have had a direct um, uh, connection with somebody, either in their family or a close friend, who's committed suicide?" And about sixty percent of the hands went up. Uh, So this is not a rare thing. Uh, And and what what happens every uh, time—not every time, but usually when there is somebody who ends their own uh, life—people are shocked and surprised because everything looked great on the outside. And so what we're trying to do is to talk about that stuff before it gets to the point of utter desperation uh, and hopelessness. So uh, the law, telling it will not make people do it. The will is not free, and that manifests itself in all kinds of behavior. Um, And then uh, the third thing, having said the law can't change people, so that people aren't free. Well, when, what is the good news? The good news is that for every human being who is under the law and who is unfree, God looks at that human being and says, I love you. Past any sort of reason, past any sort of uh, rationality, God is a vulgar fool because he loves people who will betray and transgress over and over, but is determined to do so. That's God's MO. Um, it's not mine. That's not how any relationship I'm in works, not 100% of the time. But this is how God works. Um, what this um, You'll hear therapists use this phrase a lot, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a good secular way of putting uh, what we are talking about here and how God sees people. It's a good therapist, if you've ever had one. There are bad ones, but if you've had a good one, one of the things they try to um, adopt in their practice is that when they're with a client, um, they show what's called unconditional positive regard. Whatever you come into my office to tell me, as you're sitting on that couch or chair across from me, whatever crazy stuff comes out of your mouth, You know, you like to cross-dress and um, make matching outfits for your hamster. Um, You have the darkest thoughts about killing everybody in your office. You um, uh, uh, wake up in the middle of the night just terrified of um, all the illnesses you think you might have. And your heart races and you can't go back to sleep. Um, You cannot stop thinking about the person you first fell in love with in the eighth grade. And um, you fantasize about that person all the time. Whatever these things might be that you don't tell anyone, you could sit with that person, they could come out of your mouth, and the therapist would say, hmm, tell me more about that. That's unconditional positive regard. This is what happens in AA meetings. If you ever get a chance to go to an open meeting, uh, I encourage you to do so if you're not already in some sort of 12-step recovery. Um, if you are an addict, um, that may be something you want to look into. But uh, uh, I remember I was in seminary, and I had a buddy who was, and, you know, uh, Paul talks about AA all the time, and it's something we talk about in Mockingbird all the time, and Dave talks about it. The pod, the Mockingcast just did a thing where we talked a lot about AA. And, um, So I began to hear a lot of it when I was in seminary with Paul. and I've never been to a meeting. Let's go. So I had a buddy who was in recovery, and he took me to an open meeting. And the most striking thing to me was that people would go. I mean, if you've been, you've seen this. uh, They start the meeting, and the first person to share, it's their turn. And they'll say, hi, my name's Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hi, Steve. Like, you've just said the most shameful thing. At least something if, you know, for many people, that would be something they haven't told anyone. They haven't admitted to themselves. So they just open up like, and everybody just shows unconditional positive regard. They are not freaked out by what you are going through and who you are. Uh, uh, I had a friend um, who said the first time uh, they went to a sex addicts meeting, and they kind of opened up about that. They said it was the first time in my life I'd ever been honest. And to have everybody in this person's deepest fear was that that honesty would then provoke prompt pro, uh, rejection. Show me who you are and I will reject you. This is what Kelly Clarkson sings about, right? Can you handle my dark side? Everybody's got a dark side, she says. We all like to pretend like we don't. But she says we do. And, and can you can you handle it? Will you still love me if I show you who I really am? So this is what Mockingbird tries to communicate. This is the message over and over and over again. We try to say, <laughs> as, as Sarah Conan quoted me last night, I mean, I think this is a good summary of it. People are bad. We are acting out, driven by all kinds of forces we can't control. Um, we are broken. Uh, Christians are people, and therefore Christians are bad, which is to say all this is true for people even if you are, uh, if you love the Lord, Uh, washed in the blood, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Um, These things, uh, uh, you know, Martin Luther said, the old Adam, meaning the old kind of human being, pre-Christian, pre-salvation human, the old Adam is drowned in the waters of baptism, but he is a mighty good swimmer. So these things continue to come up even for Christians. So the law cannot produce what it demands. It usually produces the opposite effect. The will is not free, and in light of that, uh, God offers unconditional positive regard. Um, as Tim Blackman quoted uh, beautifully, and it made me weep, um, uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, in Christ, God looks at you as if you had never been a sinner and never sinned. Right? That's the one problem with Norm Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. You know, one of the great classic rock songs of all time. Um, if you don't know it, just Google it and listen to it, and you'll you'll recognize it. But he says, um, uh, "I'm going up to the spirit in the sky." He says, uh, "I got a friend in Jesus." Uh, but then he says, "Never been a sinner, never sinned." Yeah. I'm like you, really? yeah, yeah. Look in the mirror. Um, but uh, but in Christ, that is actually true. It's as if you had never don't you sinned. Think that's what he's saying in that song. Maybe. Well, then I love it. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you. So I will now reframe my understanding of the song because I. Okay. Okay. Well, good. Well, praise God. All right. Well, we'll we'll use that. (laughs) We will we'll move forward. That's that helps me. Now I'm not as angry at Norm. All right. Uh, So um, uh, this is this is what Mockingbird is. So I'm going to stop there, um, and just. yeah, I, I had some terms that we could define if you're confused by words you've read on Mockingbird site or in our books, uh, but that's it. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I'll stop there. What questions do you have? Yeah, Michael. Super Newsies, would you explain the name? Mockingbird, yeah. That's, that would have been a great place to start. So <laughs> the name Mockingbird uh, comes from a song by Derek Webb, who uh, was one of the original members of a Christian band called Cademan's Call, then went solo, and recorded a lot of beautiful albums of Christian folk Rock uh, now he's still a singer songwriter, but I think is in a much different place spiritually. I saw him in Waco uh, a few months ago, and very honest about just his crisis of faith. He's now divorced, and uh, his life has sort of changed dramatically. He had a very public and spectacular sort of falling apart uh, in his family, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. He, it, the the banter between songs was um, like someone who's trying to figure out if there's a God. Nevertheless, Derek Webb recorded a song called "Mockingbird." In which he said, I am like a mockingbird. I have no new song to sing. I just repeat what I've heard. And so uh, that's the idea of this ministry. So Dave was listening to that album at the time we got started. And I think he wanted to call the organization the Love and Mercy Project, uh, which the acronym would be LAMP. <laughs> and he realized that probably was not a good name for an organization. So, yeah, saying we just want to say the same thing over and over again. No original idea. Just saying the same thing that we've heard from Jesus and from St. Paul and from St. Augustine and from all these other sources. And want to want to just say, the, say it. So that's where Mockingbird comes from. What other questions do you guys have? I don't know if I can articulate this, but I like everything you just said. Those truths of Mockingbird, that speaks to me. But maybe it's because I grew up Catholic. It yeah. kind of seems like a cop-out a mm-hmm. little bit too, right? Like, oh, I'm imperfect, but God loves me, so that's funny. Yeah, so that's a great question. It feels like a cop-out to say I'm imperfect, God loves me, so whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I get it. And, uh, but I feel like, so it is, it is, it is a cop-out. Um, that is the scandal of, and vulgarity of God's grace. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, someone who has been truly loved in their reality, the response typically is not whatever. The response is typically, oh my God, um, thank you. And there is a, the, the, the bud that was closed tight now begins to open. Um, the heart that was frozen begins to thaw. Uh, the person who was completely self-absorbed and narcissistic, um, now maybe begins to show empathy and compassion. And I would say the, um, the, the Exhibit A from literature to kind of demonstrate this impact is, and we've, there have been lots of posts and talks about in, in Mockingbird's um, uh, catalog about this, um, is would-be Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets off completely scot-free. He's shown the reality of his life. He's shown who he is. And he is, he is not given the consequences. Uh, and... Um, and the, the, the result is complete transformation. Um, I think what happens in a lot of churches where there is a real focus on where you are <laughs> off track, and the message then is get back on track, that usually leads to, uh, it's well-meaning, it's well-intentioned, but it usually means to, leads to um, attempts to get better, which leads to failure, which leads to guilt, which leads to shame and you just sort of start hiding, hiding the places where you're not m- making the grade. So, th- so when you say that, I hear what you're saying it is a cop-out, but to go the other route and to just to put more law on people will actually make the problem worse. Uh, and so what we try to do is say if there is a gracious and it, you know people will sometimes say a similar idea of what you're talking about There's, you're just this is cheap grace." And we would say, no, it's not cheap, it's free. And there, it was costly, but Jesus is the one that paid that cost. Yeah. So uh, first, uh, Pittsburgh, what's your name? Elise. <laughs> yeah, that's, you also I, lived there, I lived there for Costa. seven Costa. years, so okay. Um, so I, I've drunk the juice. I love everything about Mockingbird, uh, but where I'm kind of coming up short is, you know, in, in Scripture it says it was good. God created it good. Yeah. We were made good. Yeah. Um, how do we hold that intention? What's the... Speak to that. Yeah, great, great question. So what do we do with the fact that... So at Mockberry, we're always saying everybody's bad, everybody's terrible. Which is good, Yeah, which is good. To, good. To, it's good to be honest. Uh, but how does that fit with, in the biblical narrative, that people are originally good? Uh, and I would say I don't see a conflict in that. I feel like in, in some sense, Christianity is... I I would like to say only, but I'm not enough of a student of world religions to make that exclusive claim. But I think, let's at least say we can say Christianity is um, uh, one of its, I think, unique uh, insights. It begins in its understanding of the world, going back to Genesis, begins with an understanding of the world and of human beings and of creation that is good. And then there's a a, (laughs) a, a turn. Uh, If you read other creation stories origin stories of the universe and human beings, they begin with a depiction of the universe in which sin and narcissism and self-absorption is already present. So a lot of creation stories begin with this idea that there's some sort of conflict among deities. There's already fighting. There's like soap operas in heaven, Uh, jilted lovers and love triangles and power struggles. And so, so I think I would say Mockingbird affirms the Christian story that we begin good. And that's why um, uh, we can talk about the bad, I think, in some sense. So there is a Christian understanding out there that would say, and you'll hear preachers and books that say, you know, I don't believe in original sin. I believe in original blessing. And they'll point to Genesis 1 and 2, pre-Genesis 3, fall, and say God created everything and said it was really good. I would say yes, but that misses the whole story, um, the 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 turn, the, the plot twist. Um, so we would try to say um, uh, the the uh, the the reason human beings are in this kind of pain and mental anguish and dark place. Is because there is that our, our our origin story. We were good. There is a, a a memory of Eden. There is there's a sense in which we know it shouldn't be this way, and so we would affirm that. And so let's so that's that's why it hurts so much when we are hurt and we hurt others. So um, I don't know if that helps, but it sounds like yeah, our yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think so. Um, yeah. Wow. I think the only thing you can say... Is it was her turn. <laughs> Leslie, go ahead. <laughs> so, thank you. Oh, I'm a literature teacher, and I like the Ebenezer Scrooge. I also teach every man. Mm-hmm. And I think that play has a step gap that mm-hmm. the public thing is missing. In other words, every man, mm-hmm. death comes for him. I've got to settle my accounts. Oh, my gosh. Who will go with me? Nobody. Yes. Good deeds is a little bit. But... But uh, what he has to do is to recognize that his life has been not good. Mm -hmm. And then he puts on the cloak of sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's an, oh, there's an aha moment. to recognize, Mm -hmm. and then you're sorry. Mm -hmm. So so it's like people are bad, Mm -hmm. and then Jesus saves us. But in between, there is the aha and the I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And I would say, yes, but... uh, I think because the I, human beings can we can get kind of wrapped up in the chronology of those events. So and, and turn them almost, even if it's not the intention, turn it into a condition a condition. Like you are forgiven if you're sorry enough. You no, for- I think everybody's forgiven. Yeah, yeah, okay. So every yes. To, to have yes. Joy, yes. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, yes. Then you have to go up. Yeah. I haven't been so good in this. <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry about that. Yeah. And, and, no, I think everybody's Yeah. Oh, yeah, great. And, and so I'm not directing those, these comments at you in particular, but I do think there is often a narrative in the church uh, that would take kind of that moment of sorrow, that moment of realization oh, yes. that Michael Jackson, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to make a change. Right, they make it into a work, and they want everybody to have that experience. Unless you've had that experience and had it enough, unless you unless you you have to have groveled enough in order to be forgiven. And what I always want to point people to is the calling of well, you know, Sarah talked about Zacchaeus today, who makes no moment of repentance. He's in the tree; the the repentance comes after the acceptance. But you also see this with Matthew, the calling of Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. He is in his tax-collecting office, cooking the books, doing whatever, extorting uh, and using the power levers at his control to exploit people. He is not having a crisis of conscience as far as we know. Jesus just sort of walks into that den of iniquity and says, follow me. And there's a great Caravaggio painting. What? like he says yes. And he says yes. Yeah, he says yes. But my only point is, um, and this is, again, not what you are saying, but I, I do think it's important to just, uh, you know, as we're recording this and kind of talking about these mechanisms of God's work in our life, uh, there is so often a desire people have to to, to sort of want to say, yes, but you you have to receive it, though. Um, and the, the, the sort of analogy that We used to describe this thing, and I think some, I can't, I forget who wrote it. Maybe it was Rod Rosenblatt or some other kind of mockingbird writer or speaker in the past. But the idea of the human condition metaphorically we described as a person who's drowning in a stormy sea and a boat comes up and throws a life preserver and you grab the life preserver and are pulled to safety. And then you get on the deck of the boat and you're like, did you see how I grabbed that life preserver? (laughs) The way the muscles in my arm were rippling and shining in the dramatic lighting of that moment. Um, it's to totally miss the point. And you know, it's, it's, to grab onto something so you don't die, it's not a work, it's not a contribution, it's not something to feel like Dude, look at look what I did. Um, so I think that's the kind of uh, yeah I think for I would like to say people do have a moment of realization, that moment of sorrow and and that is a real thing. I think where other people take that off track is when they say. They, they turn it into something that we have to do in some sort of formulaic sequence of events. Um, and the other um, thing that I would say to go even a step beyond that is... Uh, and this gets to one of the terms I wanted to describe or, and define, because these words do get thrown around in mockingbird sometimes, The words monergism and synergism. Monergistic action of God or synergistic action of God. Synergistic is a buzzword in corporate America that people know. It's things working together. Um, monergistic is um, the. It's not that. It's one unilateral action. There's no cooperation whatsoever. And Mockingbird is going to want to land on the side of, when we talk about how we understand our relationship with God, it's a monergistic action as we, as we think about salvation, uh, it's justification, sanctification, all those theological words. It's God doing this. And, and we say we're on solid, and it, there's a huge effort and desire in the churches and uh, Christian spheres today to talk about cooperation with God. And it's not a new thing. It's, and, and, and I get it. I get it, and I can quote the proof texts to you just as well as you could quote them back to me. But what we wanna say is um, oftentimes, because human beings, as Calvin said, human heart is an idol factory, which usually makes, we like to worship ourselves. When we start talking about cooperation with God, God takes a minor supporting role and your spiritual growth is all up to you. That's how it feels in practice. No matter how much you might wanna talk about 50-50, or maybe it's even 90-10. God, and you're 10%. Because the 10% is what I control, that's where all my mental energy is focused. Okay, driver's ed teacher. What? God's a driver's ed teacher. God's a driver's ed teacher. Say more. What do you mean by that? Well, he's sitting in the passenger seat yes. trying to right. help you out. Right. Yeah, and, so, and some people would say, with Carrie Underwood, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. We would say more than that. Jesus is driving, and you're in the trunk. Right. You know, maybe you're in the back seat. We'll give you more light and air. Because <laughs> uh, we if we're in shotgun, we kind of always want to take the wheel back. Um, God's action is is monergistic. So and the, the scripture that we would point to in this is from St. Paul, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses, and Christ raised you and made you alive. This is not—the <laughs> the, uh, Christian understanding of salvation is not, you know— Someone who is yes sick ailing on life support in ICU spiritually and they get better because they take the medicine. The idea is you are dead. Uh, a dead person cannot raise themselves. So this is God's action. To so this is this is a, kind of how we how we see that, um, and to kind of riff on something Tim Blackman again said this morning. Um, Luther said when asked what do we contribute to our salvation, he said sin and resistance. Uh, so uh, I think the other thing that we have to be careful of in cooperation with God language is that we often, when we start doing things that we would see as our cooperation with God, we tend to feel a lot of pride uh, about those things. So now, as Luther would say, our, what we thought were our um, virtuous, righteous acts have now become mortal sins because we've now made ourselves God, you know, we are we are the ones that are getting it, getting it done. And so, um, uh, sometimes those things which where we cooperate with God are spiritually damaging to us because we're like, look at how great we are, and how again, not everybody. And there are there are people who are deeply filled with the Spirit and do do amazing acts of piety and Christian love and virtue with seemingly no self-awareness or sense of inflated ego. And that is a beautiful thing. And if you know someone like that or if you've been that person, I praise God for you. But I think a lot of us in the trenches, whenever we do a good thing, we're like, yeah, did you see that thing I did? I hope somebody thanks me. Um, And I think the cooperation with God model uh, tends to miss out on the reality that I think most of the events in your life where you are changed, transformed, affected by God is usually because of your spectacular failure and God doing the thing in your life that changed you almost apart from you. Uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar who says many beautiful, amazing things. Uh, and he says, God comes to you disguised as your life. Which is to say, most Christians, see their life is this thing that's going on over here, and then their Christian life is the things that they do to make themselves spiritually better. I will make myself a better Christian by reading the Bible, going to Bible study, going to church, saying prayers, fasting, spiritual disciplines, whatever it will be. Which there may be something that happens there. Usually my prayer life just makes me realize how distractible and uh, not focused I am and uh, um, makes me aware of how much I don't want to pray. Uh, the, The place, though, that God is often really working in my life are the difficult relationships or the frustrating situations at work, the places that bring me to the end of myself and make me cry out to God out of a place of real need as opposed to checking off some spiritual boxes and collecting brownie points. So God comes to you disguised as your life, um, which is to say God can work on you despite whether you are cooperating or not. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a long way of addressing some of the constellation of issues around the... the um, I do a lot of free associations, so that's kind of what that... I Did for, Did you want to say something? Actually, what you did was really wonderful. It's a good thing you did call on her. Um, because what I, I was going to make an observation when you said, I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to say only, mm-hmm. I don't know about the religions of the world. But the whole, it seems like the whole essence of what Mockingbird is, is the gospel truth, that you can, I think, in fairness, say Christianity is really the only religion, which is why we don't like to even say religion, um, where Whereas best it understands it is all grace. It's just totally grace. Mm-hmm. There's no the correct thing about de-emphasizing our cooperation is because it's all grace. Mm-hmm. It's nothing else. Mm-hmm. It, and then in some way or another, every other religion always says it isn't if there's even grace, it isn't just grace. Right. You've got to do all this, that, and the other as well. Right. Yeah, there's there's a there's a demand for performance, and that's how you get to be a good person or be a good religious person. And, um, you know, there's a a great um, interview. I think there was a series, maybe on HBO, it's called Public Speaking. It was these interviews, Martin Scorsese interviewing people, interviewed, um, I want to say, Fran Lebowitz, you know, Jewish atheist writer, thinker, speaker. Um, And she said, you know, I don't even remember how it came up, but she said, you know, the thing about Christianity is it is about forgiveness. And she actually said, Christianity is forgiveness. And she gets it. Mm-hmm. As an outside observer from a, from a different religious tradition, she gets it. Most people within Christianity would see it's not about that. That's not how it's lived and felt and experienced often. What other thoughts or questions? Yes. Um, so, a um, gospel... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing talk, and to me, it's kind of the Mockingbird manifesto. Yeah, book, for sure. But, um, uh, where does Mockingbird stand on universalism? Oh, great question. So, the question, uh, online listeners, as we record this talk, is where does Mockingbird stand on universalism? Uh, and you refer to Law and Gospel, a book that. Uh, uses that term to describe. I mean, that's the, the theological stream that Mockingbird streams in law and gospel, this articulation of God's law and his gospel and how those forces work together to um, wake us up to the fact that we're loved by God in Christ. Um, and so uh, the the maybe one of the things that people get worried about when you talk about grace in such a free and reckless uh, distribution of God's love, maybe that we're worried that or not worried, but one possible outcome of that would we believe that everybody gets saved, which is what universalism is. Is that a fair description of the question? Uh, so the question is where. Yeah. Uh, so this is where um, Mockingbird has not published a manifesto about our stance on universalism or any of these issues. I would say, um, and so I would I would qualify with what what I'm about to say is, this is not me. St- If you don't like what I say, don't write an angry letter to Dave Zoll. Uh, So I'm going to speak on behalf of myself. And I think it would be consonant with an understanding of kind of how the Mockingbird people, the universe, feel about this question uh, on universalism. Um, I think I would, just as a person who knows the Bible and loves God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I would recognize that there is a tension in Scripture. We have Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats. Jesus talking about the, the way is narrow and few find it, but the, but the way to destruction is wide and there's a lot of people on that path. So there does seem to be, in Jesus' language, a kind of in and out um, groupings of people. Some people are in, some people are out. On the other hand, you do have um, John 3, 16, 3, 17, God so loved the world, uh, not and then John three seventeen not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through Christ and then you have um, verses in the epistles uh, for example where you have um, uh, I think it's in Peter Peter's letters uh, where he says that God desires or maybe it's either first it's either John or Peter um, God desires the whole world to come to repentance. And that's why God is patient. He's waiting for everybody to come to repentance. Um, you have um, that rather obscure verse, New Testament, where it talks about Jesus descending after his death to preach to those who are in chains. Um, so there, there, there is, um, sometimes it sounds like there's people in and people out, and sometimes it sounds like everybody gets in. Uh, and so what do we do with that? I would say, you know, which one is it? I would say yes. <laughs> but I would also say that, and I think Robert Farrah Capen, who we like to quote all the time, his books are behind me on this table. Um, he, he like, he, the way he addresses this, and again, I'm not going to say this is Mockhammer's view. I read it and I think it's compelling, and I kind of, this is where I, I lie down and make my bed. Um, he says, the impact of God incarnating himself in Jesus Christ and dying for the sins of the world and rising again is such a cataclysmic cosmos-altering event at the center of the universe that it affects every single thing and every single person. Uh, And he likens the gospel and this salvific work in the death and resurrection of Christ, he likens that to like a a heart-shaped box of chocolates that's hidden in every house in the world. It's like under everybody's bed. Everybody has the gift. It is for all. Some people find the chocolates and some people don't, or some people find them and might not eat them or something like that. He, he talks about that. He says it is given to everybody, it does apply to everybody, um, but some people don't seem to find it. Uh, and I think, um, so I would just say I, we affirm what the scriptures say. Um, I'm not a universalist because I can't be, because the scriptures seem to indicate that there are some people who choose a different way. Um, or who end up in a different way. This gets into divine mystery. Even human language begins to break down. Um, I would read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce here on this one. Um, uh, but I would also say that, and I, I would be comfortable, I think, saying this on behalf of Mockingbird, we, we kind of want to be universalists right. because we want everybody to be in. And and if there's ever a question about someone in or someone out, I always quote that old hymn, there's a wideness in God's mercy. And in Jesus's own ministry, he always seemed to be trying to make the doors open even wider to as many people as possible as a trying, as instead of trying to close them down. I think when he talks about the wide and narrow way, you know, narrow is the way it leads to salvation and wide is the way that leads to destruction. Um, I think he's not saying you have to work really hard and be perfect to get on that straight and narrow path. I think he's saying that the path is so... Um, repugnant to people because the Christian path is one not of human achievement and striving and performance uh, uh, and uh, works righteousness in a sense. The Christian path is one of giving up and yielding and people don't like it so they don't want to follow that. People like the path of achievement and work. What were you going to say, no, uh, Stephen? I gonna, do you remember, uh, I'm going to remember uh, Cathan's uh, parables, one of the parables that's where he it's parables of judgment, I think. Uh, King's Son's Wedding uh, and, and it was the the in before your outness. of yeah. the gospel you're in. I, I mean, I was thinking about that one. Too. Yeah. So the par- well, you're talking about the parable of the wedding feast. Yes. But... Yeah. Everybody is in the wedding. You know that. That's a story. And, and it's so weird. Yeah. Weird. People are invited. Nobody comes. So, they send, so the vineyard owner, or the king, says to his servant, Go out and get everybody that's just loitering by the side of the road. Pick up all the hitchhikers and deadbeats, as well as the commuters and the type A's. He says, The good and the bad. Just bring them all in. And everybody gets in. And then at the end, there's a guy there without a wedding garment. And the king goes up and says, friend, you know, how would you get in without a garment? And Capon talks about that and just notes that the, the grace is that he was invited, the grace that he's in, the, you know, he's, and the, the further grace is that he's even given a chance to say, oh my gosh, you're right, for, I came in the side entrance, I came in the catering entrance, and I missed the handing out of the free wedding garments on the way in. Um, but he says, friend, how did you get in without a wedding garment? And it says the man was speechless. So he, he's given a chance to correct the thing, and he doesn't want to. He wants to, he wants to be in there with his own clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wants to be judged on his own merits, and so the king's like, okay, you got it. But, just study, but he's in. Yeah, but just a study of that parable changed the way I relate to non-Christians. Because they might already be in. Oh, they're in. Yeah, they're yeah. loved yeah. by God. Wow. Yeah. And I just start there. Yeah. Yeah, they're in before they're out. That's that's a great way to put it. What other, I mean, I'm not sure how long, when are we supposed to end? It's been an hour. What, what What's the schedule here? <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, I guess we're done. And if you have more questions, you can talk to me afterwards. Uh, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much and for all that you have given us, especially the unconditional positive regard in Christ that we have. Amen. All right, y'all. I don't know if you're the amen. The door slamming was well-timed. So thank you. Thank you very much. I understand so much better. Well, good. That's-